Greetings, everyone. I am so happy to be with you here, t here today in this space, in your space, wherever that is today, together yet apart. My name is Michelle Englum Degelman, and I am a wife of 11 years, a mom to an independent and silly seven-year-old daughter, Claire. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and have been specializing in working with couples for over 15 years and worked with families in foster care and residential facilities before that. I'm an associate professor and the program director of the marriage and family therapy program at George Fox University, where I enjoy teaching eager learners how to be with couples in a therapeutic setting. I love marriage when it goes well and I grieve when marriages struggle. I'm here with you today to talk with you about what makes marriage healthy and some of the things to help when it's hard and struggling. It's funny how we believe to be some things to be true about marriage, and then just like that, it can be changed and flipped on its side when something like a global pandemic hits. Did anyone think their marriage was pretty good up until mid-March? Or maybe you thought things were really disconnected in your marriage until around mid-March. Relationships are constantly evolving, shifting, and adjusting to external information and pressures, as well as internal thoughts and experiences. We are among a current global pandemic, COVID-19, and learning more about ourselves, our kids, our relationships than we ever thought we could or would. We are learning in this time how to lean into one another and relationships while also being apart. It's interesting. I kind of think a fundamental mistake was made at the start of this pandemic, and that is requiring quote-unquote social distancing. What we need really is social connection and physical distancing. I'm not, I'm not commenting here on whether we should be social or physical distancing, but what, I'm, what I am commenting on is that I'm calling it social distancing, even though I know what they mean when they say it. Fundamentally, we got it backwards, and the lack of connection that has happened for some has been devastating. For others, the physical distancing from other people has created space for a pushing in of physical, physical connection at home. People are together in their homes more, and relationships are being impacted. This time has highlighted our need for relationships, for social connection, perhaps not the face-to-face -face kind. It's highlighted the fact that in truth, when we really, really slow down and look at our lives, our lives, our relationships, our feelings of connection are in the hands of others. Our trust in others and the feelings that others will respond to us is the basis to our sense of a safe society and our safety in the world and, more specifically, in our most intimate relationships. The quality of our relationships are incredibly important right now. 
when the quantity of our time with others and our relationships with others have decreased, we find out more about the quality of our relationships with those that we spend the most time with. What I hope from this epidemic is that it's a huge wake-up call for the fact that our relationships are essential to us and we need to heal them and grow them. And don't just simply put them back on the shelf and turn back to busy and distracted lives and act like our primary relationships are incidental and secondary. There's a science of adult love and bonding, a science that is rich with thousands of studies that give us a map to our most intimate relationships, to why we need them so much, how they go wrong, and how to put them right. The science of attachment gives us this map to relationships and to our internal longing to connection, our sense of vulnerability, and the fact that there are only so many ways of dealing with that vulnerability. Some of us move into isolation and disconnection, and some of us take some of us move into reaching for others and connecting. Let me share two images, stories, life experiences of mine for you, each happening within the last two months. The first image that I want you to picture is of my husband and I running with my daughter riding her bike alongside us on a quiet road by the river. Lawns of flowers, Couples and families sitting out in their lawns and in the park on a Thursday afternoon when we'd normally be at work and at school. Neighbors are connecting at the end of their driveways, kids are playing in the lawns, and families are eating outside together. People are connecting with each other, spending time together, having meals together, and laughing. And as I was running, I thought, Ah, this is what people do in times of uncertainty and danger. They turn towards each other and they reach for one another and they find protection and a safe haven and protection from their anxieties and reassurance in the connection with other people. This is amazing and people are spending time with loved ones zooming with each other, FaceTiming with each other, we naturally turn to others as a source of security. That's just who we are. We are bonding mammals. And that's the most natural and efficient way for us to handle our anxiety, to turn towards others. On the other hand, I stand on my deck at night and I listen to my neighbors fighting and I realize this is the other side. The other side is when we are threatened and stressed, faced with uncertainty, naturally our need for others, our attachment vulnerabilities come up, our anxieties come up, our need for others is front and center. And if we find that the answer to the million dollar question in relationships, which is, are you there for me? Do I matter to you? Can you see me? Can you see my pain? Will you come to me when I call? 
And for many people, their need for connection is going to come, become more poignant, more pressing. And if they cannot reach for their partner safely, if their partner does not respond to them, if they feel emotionally alone, then their anxiety is going to go up. Their perception of the relationship as not a safe haven is going to plummet. They're going to get more distressed in their relationship and see their partner in a more negative light. They're going to get more distressed and more anxious. We know that secure attachment with another human being creates resilience so we can feel stronger and go out and face the world. On the other side, when we feel stress and we face danger alone, or if we feel like we're going it alone, even in the presence of another person, it is exceedingly difficult. Maybe your relationship is more like the first example. You're enjoying every moment with your partner and your family. You're soaking up the together time and the slower pace. And life feels really good and balanced. I'm so happy you found this together time. Or maybe you're more like the second couple in my example, where this together time has been hard on your relationship because you're spending extra time together and you haven't really enjoyed it, maybe you're fighting more or need more time away. Maybe you're like me and experiencing a little bit of both. Some days feel like pure bliss. The sun is out, the kids are getting along, and you wish for all days like this. Other days feel like you're bordering on a relationship war zone and you're disconnected and fighting and feeling at odds with one another about everything. Whatever your experience, let me tell you loud and clear, it's normal. Being in an intimate relationship can be difficult, can be rewarding. We say in the standard set of vows, for better or for worse. And there's a lot of both of those experiences in marriage. We need relationships, bonded relationships, like the fish need water. It's biological. It impacts our immune systems, our stress hormones, levels of inflammation, and our sense of resilience. We are not wired to face dragons alone. It's science. Sue Johnson, a researcher in the field of marriage and family therapy, talks about couple distress and conflict. What she says is, the essence of relationship distress is not conflict per se. All couples have conflict and differences. That's not the issue. Conflict is the inflammation. The virus is emotional disconnection. The virus is feeling like you are alone, that you are abandoned or rejected in a relationship. And therefore, the other person doesn't hear your vulnerability or respond to it. And it leaves people alone or feeling alone. It leaves people feeling like they expect closeness because they're in a relationship and all your needs are primed to be met. But your ability to create that closeness is not there. This 
disorganizes people. These powerful emotions and needs, when they are not met, create dreadful patterns. When instead of feeling connected and safe and supported, we end up feeling alone and isolated. We often learn how to meet the needs of others or have experienced these needs being met or not in our families of origin with our own parents and siblings or caregivers. And we bring those learned experiences, both healthy and unhealthy, into our adult romantic relationships. They create patterns, cycles, and we can get triggered and then we respond to others in ways that are both helpful and unhelpful based on those past experiences. Imagine picking up your mom at the airport for a visit. You haven't seen her for many months and you're excited to connect and share stories. Your excitement is building. The anticipation is building as you wait. And then as you see her coming down the escalator, you're excited and filled with joy. She leans in to give you a hug and the two of you embrace and you feel connection. Then she pulls away and asks you what you've done with your hair. Comments that maybe it seems like you've gained a few pounds. And then she rubs the dirt off the face of your little one and mentions the young girl needs a bath. Our connections with others shape our responses to stress and shape how we engage with others and have learned to engage with others. So imagine this in your mind. Picture this. We all carry baggage from our past into our current relationship. So picture with me a big suitcase filled with stuff lots of stuff. Our baggage from our past, our past relationships, our past intimate relationships. Things are busting out the sides of the suitcase and the seams and the latches of the suitcase are buckling under the pressure of this baggage. When we walk into our marriage, we carry this suitcase filled with our baggage, hurts, disappointments, fears, unmet longings, infidelity, divorce, violence, abandonment, hopeful ways of receiving love, all of those things. We bring that baggage into the relationship with our partner. Think for a moment what this baggage is for you. What is in that suitcase filling it up? For me, mine includes things like criticism, myself, criticism of myself, and criticism of others. Fears that I'm not good enough, that I have to be doing and producing all the right things to be worthy enough for love. That's my baggage, some of my baggage. What are those things for you? Now, imagine your partner they come in with their own set of baggage, bursting at the seams, just like yours. Their baggage is heavy and weighing them down, maybe. You set both of these down on the proverbial floor with a loud thud right next to each other. 
What you do with those big suitcases of baggage is crucial. Do you let them sit there, bulging at the sides? You think they're hidden and packed away, they're gathering dust? Maybe you even hide them in the basement or in the attic. Or do you open them up? Do you share those pieces with your partner? Do you begin to unpack them and look at the ways they might impact your marriage? When one piece of your own baggage, maybe your parents' divorce when you were young and it came out of the blue for you, gets set next to or is triggered by your partner's baggage of his first wife leaving him for someone else. When those two pieces of baggage get mixed together, if they haven't been brought out into the open, they haven't been unpacked with one another, they create a dance that isn't helpful to the marriage. The dance can become toxic and painful and can definitely lead to disconnection and hurt. We all have baggage that includes pain and fear, joy and connection. And those pieces of baggage are most helpful to relationship connection and security when they're shared with one another. A deep longing for connection is healthy. Sometimes it becomes blocked and doesn't always turn into a natural process of connection where we reach for others when we feel vulnerable, where we say what we need, share what's happening with us. When we do, it causes our nervous system to calm down. We feel more balanced and resilient. When we have a safe haven, when we have a safe haven in our relationship, when we can depend on others for safety and comfort, we can face challenges. This is different from some, some of us who grew up and weren't raised like this, especially women where we were taught that basically strength was not depending on others, having very firm boundaries with others, and that somehow there is enmeshment and codependency, right? We have all these negative names for what we believe is too much dependency or too much closeness. But there's healing there in connection and in closeness to a more secure bond. When this safe haven between couples feels unstable or we don't feel connected with our partner and when anxiety comes up, no matter what the anxiety is around, kids at home for homeschool, both parents now working from home, or both parents being essential workers but have kids at home, it throws us into this dance of conflict and disconnection. When one or both partners feel alone, disconnected, or criticized, this cycle happens in the relationship. The most regular, most typical pattern that people fall into is when one person feels disconnected and gets anxious and pushes for contact, but that push literally becomes pushy and it sounds critical and it becomes demanding. The other person, right, in that feels rejected or confronted and they shut down. The more that person shuts down, 
the more the anxious, pushy person gets bigger. And the more anxious and big and critical they become, the more they push. Let me give you an example. Right now, my husband and I are both working from home full time. We're concerned, like many other people, about what the fall will look like for, for our daughter and her return to school, or if we decide to homeschool her or use the district's online option, etc., etc. I even can't get into it all right now because I can already feel my heart starting to beat faster as I talk with all of you about this right now. I want to figure it out now, to have a plan, to ease my own anxieties about the unknown. My husband, on the other hand, is much more of a wait and see and when we know about our options, then we can decide, which drives me completely batty. Maybe some of you can relate. I'm hoping right now, I'm imagining your heads nodding out there in solidarity with me. I feel you and I feel and appreciate your validation. So many of our conversations, disagreements, look like me incessantly, if I'm being honest, bring up this conversation, an anxiety-provoking conversation, with a demand that we figure things out now. And of course, I bring it up at the very best times when we have nothing else to worry about. My husband, Adam, becomes quickly overwhelmed. He shuts down because he gets overwhelmed too, but he doesn't always communicate this. Instead, his, to me, apparent indifferent, indifference shoots me into a bigger panic because then I feel like I'm the only one caring about this. And if he cared, he would invest in this and show that he is worried about our unknown plans. And then it quickly spirals right into a big mess. It all comes out critical. He pulls away, causing me, right, to push in deeper with more intensity. And we push away from one another more and more. What would be more helpful in this is for me to speak my truth, which would be something more like, I'm scared that we won't figure this out, and then feel forced into a decision that doesn't maybe feel the best for us. And it feels like you don't care about this as much as I do. And that makes me feel alone in this. And I don't like feeling alone in this. In this example, you can see the negative dance that we get caught in when we're not emotionally balanced enough to reach and move into the more vulnerable place and ask for a response from that place. The negative conflict we get caught in when we're pushing or shutting down or shutting out and each partner is suddenly isolated, feeling rejected which causes our anxiety, my anxiety, to get worse. And our sense of connection with the other person gets worse. And the whole thing is a disaster. Think with me for a moment. What are your neg negative patterns in your relationship? We all have them. I've been married for 11 years and been a therapist even longer, and I certainly have them. In our dance, maybe you've already guessed this, 
I'm the person who pursues. I push in. And sometimes I say my requests or longings in ways that aren't easy to receive or respond to. At the end of a busy day, when we're both exhausted and need rest, I might say something like, you know, we aren't really talking to each other or connecting. Can you already, can you hear it in my voice? My husband might say something like, we talked last night, what do you mean? I might say, what do you mean, what do I mean? That wasn't a real conversation. Don't you think we can, don't you think we can really talk, do you think we can really talk about these important things when we're sitting together at the dinner table? And all of a sudden, we're off into the cycle. To change the relationship, you have to change the ways in which you dance together. You have to change the ways in which you connect and communicate. Emotions organize your inner world and how you dance with others. What we want is emotional connection and vulnerability in that dialogue. More of an internal dialogue of, wait a minute, you're on my team and I'm acting like you're the enemy. You're not the enemy, you're scared like me. And if I slow down, I can see we're caught in that negative dance. And frankly, I don't know what to do. And there is where you can come back into balance. So there are a few key steps in this dance that are important for keeping the relationship in balance or getting it back into balance after it becomes off kilter. There are three of them for you, and they fit into a nice little acronym created by Sue Johnson, founder of a counseling theory called Emotionally Focused Therapy. Uh, she actually has a really great book called Hold Me Tight that talks about this and, and other principles for deepening your connection with your partner. The acronym that we're going to talk about today is R A R E. And the phrase that goes with it is R A R E. Are you there for me? Are you accessible? The A. Are you R responsive? And are you E, emotionally engaged? So A-R-E-R. -E -R. The first step in the success relationship dance is A for accessible. Accessible simply means, can I reach you? In this day of cell phones, emails, texting, social media, we are all accessible all the time, at least in theory. Ironically, these can also be the very things that disconnect us, right, from each other and give others the message, our partners, that something else is much more important. Just this week, I had a couple in my office on my computer where one person complained that even at her birthday dinner, her partner felt compelled to respond to every text that buzzed through his phone. She yelled at him something like, do you even care? It's supposed to be a special day for me, right? Bringing the criticism, but hiding the hurt. He then in their cycle says something to minimize it by saying it was just a text, trying to tell her that it wasn't a big deal, but missing her hurt and feelings of being dismissed. So then she, right, yells something like, couldn't they wait? Sometimes I need things to just be about us. This example shows us that being accessible for our partners 
is more than just being in the same room together or engaging in the same activity together. It's about being open to one another and paying attention to one another. Having a partner that is accessible means that they are available and can be reached when you need them. When something is settling to you, unsettling to you or equally exciting, we want to be able to reach out and share this with our partners. This becomes especially important when it's something about our relationship or when we're feeling upset or disconnected or insecure. These feelings give your partner the opportunity to connect with you by consoling and helping you express your emotions more clearly. If our partner is not accessible, or if you're not accessible from your partner, it can heighten those insecure emotions. This destructive dance that we've been talking about can take over and it can become more difficult to resolve those emotions if you can't reach for your partner when you want to. Being emotionally accessible is crucial for relationships. You can ask yourself these, these questions. Can your partner make sense of your emotions? Are you expressing yourself to your partner in ways that don't blame them? Can you reconnect with your partner once the spinning stops? and determine what was going on inside of you? If the answer is no, your partner's presence won't do any good. Neither of you will feel accessible to the other. There's a few tangible things here that you can do to create and maintain accessibility in your relationship. The first one might be obvious is to put aside distractions as you seek to connect. This has two parts, the connection and the setting aside of distractions. Make time with each other without multitasking to simply be together. Hear and hold one another. And when doing this, put aside any distractions that might come up. It seems obvious and simple, but I challenge you. Can you place your phone, your laptop, your whatever devices are disconnecting you in the other room? while you and your partner have opportunities to connect and be together. So the first step of being more accessible is making time to be together and making it distraction free. The final piece to make your, is to make your attention to each other a priority. If you list out all of the things that you do in a day, kids, school, work, home, cleaning, cooking, yard work, at what point do you list your spouse? Sadly, it's easy for our relationship with our partner to quickly slide down the priority list. So in order to be accessible to your partner, you have to actually be accessible. Easier said than done sometimes. If you are accessible to your partner, in order to feel that connection, we need to be R responsive. So the second letter in the A-R-E acronym is responsive. Being responsive is about being able to rely on your partner to interact with you on an emotional level in both good and more difficult situations. Are they able to celebrate and get excited with you about important things in your life? Are you able to meet them and tune into them emotionally when there's a disappointment? Being responsive 
means tuning into your partner and showing them that their emotions, especially attachment needs and fears, have an impact on you. Neurologically, this level of connection and ability to respond is very calming to the nervous system. Biologically, we are primed for survival. So when we know we have someone looking out for us who is able to respond appropriately, it is very reassuring. It gives the message that we are not alone in the world. We are taken care of. We can relax and let our guard down. When we are not responsive to our partner or share care and concern about the other's emotions, alarm bells go off in their mind, in our own mind, if we're not met with responsiveness. Those alarm bells might say things like, are they mad at me? Did I do something wrong? How do I fix this? And how bad is it? These alarm bells can make it difficult for your partner to figure out what happened that brought on your emotional response. They might think things like, I have to fix this, but I don't know what to fix. They might try different things, but if they don't know what brought on your emotional response <coughs> or your emotional reaction, it's unlikely they'll work. And when they don't work, feelings of frustration build on both ends. If you are both accessible and responsive, you can tune into each other's needs, thoughts, and emotions. Once you can do that, then you can bring comfort and support to each other. So there's a few tangible things that you can do to create and maintain responsiveness in your relationship. The first of those is to be curious. I've heard the phrase used, be more curious than furious, and I think it's a good example of how to become or remain responsive. With all the new responsibilities brought on by the coronavirus, it might feel like your spouse is not doing enough or is out to personally and directly make you mad or irritated, but it's really more like they're just distracted or have motivations that are invisible to you. High stress situations always bring out people's relational coping skills or lack of them. Secondly, when your partner seems to be in distress, offer openness and willingness to listen and soothe. This communicates responsiveness. Asking your partner a question and actually listening to the answer before assuming you already know can have a positive effect by giving us a moment to pause. A common quote in our field says, talking is the most dangerous thing people do, especially when they are stressed. And listening is the most infrequent thing people do, especially when they are stressed. So take some time and listen. Ask questions like, you seemed upset after coming home today. What happened? The third and final thing you can do to communicate responsiveness is to respond rather than react. This goes along with the other two, but needs a bullet point of its own. When we can be curious and listen, we can come from a place of responding to the concerns rather than reacting without pause or forced thought of the issue. 
The third and final letter in the A-R-E acronym is the E, which stands for Emotionally Engaged. Not only do partners need to be A for accessible and R for responsive to one another, but they also need to be E, emotionally engaged in the conversation to create true emotional connection. When you try to talk to your partner and you see him or her do things like disengage or stay quiet or pull away, yell, withdraw, or pout, you don't want to keep sharing with them. Your heart and your body respond in a certain way that isn't conducive to vulnerability and authenticity. On the other hand, when you or your partner asks questions, validates your emotions, expresses empathy, and is present mentally with you, you will see and feel that engagement and you'll want to continue sharing with them. Being emotionally engaged is about leaning in and being involved in ways that allow you to grow closer through sharing your emotions. When emotional engagement happens, you can feel your heart drawing towards one another. You receive the message that you're valued and that you matter. Being emotionally engaged means being vulnerable sometimes. When you speak of your insecurities from your heart, you open the door for deeper emotional engagement. Engaging yourself emotionally means digging under the anger of the moment. When you can explore a defense reaction to see what is hurting in your relationship, you invite deeper connection with each other. There's a few tangible things you can do to create and maintain emotional engagement in your relationship. The first of these is to work towards emotional presence over performance. Work towards emotional presence over performance. Far too often we try to fix things and make everything better. There's usually one fixer in the relationship that believes, just tell me what to do and this problem will go away. However, instead of fixing or seeking a solution, if we can just stay emotionally present, saying things like, I don't know what to do or what to say, I'm scared, I'm stuck, and I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. This creates emotional balance and emotional connection. The second way you can create emotional engagement is to engage in layers of conversation. The first layer, the outside layer of the onion, let's say, is about the business or the busyness of life. The shopping, chores, bills, kids, activities. A layer deeper goes down into how the day was, listening and engaging with ups and downs of the day. Another layer involves sharing your thoughts and feelings in a calm and vulnerable way. And a deeper layer yet goes way beyond this to personal longings, fears, hopes, and dreams. Sharing in this space allows for building trust and connection. So as I end with you today, I want to leave you with a few questions to ponder or to talk with your partner about. The first of these is which of these three letters in the A-R-E acronym speaks to your heart the most?
Which of the letters speaks to you the most? Which one does your heart long to have more attention? Second question, which one do you think you struggle with the most in your relationship? Which one is the most secure in your relationship right now? And the third question is, what is one thing you can commit to today to move towards more vulnerable in conversations with your partner? I challenge you to write that one thing down. One thing you can commit to today from what you've heard, what you've taken away, to move towards more vulnerable conversations with your partner. Thank you for your time today, for our togetherness today. I hope and pray for each of you and your marriage. I pray for greater connection, for healing where it's needed, and for courage for you and your partner as you seek to move towards more vulnerability and greater connection. If you have any questions or want to connect, you can find me on my therapy website. It's michelleengblom.com, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-E-N-G-B-L-O-M.com. May God bless you and your relationships. Take care.